You know what? Let's just get to talking. Okay. Because <laughs> I think we got a lot of things to say, and I'd like to actually talk about some of this. Yeah. Uh, because it is so relevant to our past experiences. Sure. Yeah. A lot of, certainly a a ton of stuff I've been studying, and I'm sure you have too over these years in terms of trying to figure out what happened to us and how we might possibly do whatever small part we can to tell people, warn people, you know, give people some advance notice that, that this is possible. And it's not only possible, it's not hard to do. Yeah. You know? And that's where I think people kind of, you know, I think there's a number of reasons, obviously, why people seem to have difficulty accepting the fact that they are susceptible to propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. And actually, you might be exactly the person to be talking to about this because, of course... I'm the propagandist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you were uh, literally trained, you know, um, uh, to do that and then trained by L. Ron Hubbard to do it. <laughs> and, and here we are, right? And you can say a lot of things about L. Ron Hubbard. And I have and you have. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, but um, I think we can agree that there was maybe – even if only instinctively, or maybe through connections, he learned some things, but somehow he had the ability to get his finger on the pulse of a room or the pulse of people and, yeah. and get into their heads and, and, and change the way that they were thinking about something. And that's not a skill that everybody's got. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? I, I think it was a con man's instinctual skill. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. um, because con men know how to con people. That's right. You know? That's right. Um, and I think he spent a long time honing that skill. You know, yeah, you yeah. go back to his childhood even, and you see this 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 storytelling thing. Yeah. And, yeah. And there's certainly nothing wrong with having imagination and telling stories, but Hubbard seemed to blend reality and fiction very easily very he he would just you know blend these things together with his tall tales of his accomplishments and always going on about himself and how wonderful and amazing he was under any context and uh, and and people like that aren't common yeah yeah you know no no so so when we went into them you know there's uh oh yeah go ahead yeah yeah no and um uh, you know, certainty is a big thing in Scientology, confidence and certainty. And the fact is that you can approach somebody, a stranger, and tell them the most craziest bullshit. And if you do it with enough confidence and certainty, they're going to go with it. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Because people have this. Well, it's our social things at work you know what i mean yeah. i don't want to get yeah. too, too involved in it but it's you know you you, you assume that the, the default position for most people is that when they are told something or given a piece of information they tend to want to believe it they tend to want to go oh well let me you know see how that could be that way rather than hang on <laughs> that, <laughs> that's not right yeah yeah, yeah exactly 
there was, um, you know, there's a issue by Hubbard. And I haven't been able to find it online, but I think it's called How to Study Scientology. You remember that one? I think I do. Describe it. Well, in that he says, when you're studying Scientology, you have to find something that you agree with. Yes, that's right. And, and, and then find another thing that you agree with and another thing you agree with, right? That's right. That's hypnosis. Good point. It's a hypnotic technique, which is very well known, interestingly enough, by salesmen. Mm -hmm. They have this maxim oh, of, yes. get, get the customer nodding, get the customer agreeing. And you go, okay, well, you know, this car has a, you know, the best safety rating of any car on the market. Now, don't you agree that your family would be safer in a car like this? Yes, right. yes. And it gets you like nodding and nodding and nodding and pretty soon they have a sale. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. In fact, I remember so clearly Ron Miscavige Sr. coming down to pack base. I'll mm -hmm. never forget this briefing because it really kind of hit a chord with me because I got into doing sales. And of course, in Scientology as Sea Org members, we were all branded as salespeople at every event. Yeah, yeah. So, and then I became a reg for a while. And, and Ron came down and he was briefing the crew on sales. And he, and he said something that stuck with me to this day. And in fact, even in my interviews with Ron, I've, I've back mentioned this and said, you taught me this. Yeah. <laughs> sales is a series of agreements. Yes. And you're leading a person down a path of agreement until you finally get them to agree to buy the product or service you're trying to sell them. But you don't start at the say yes to the sale. You start at say yes to something anybody would agree with. Anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know? And, but, yeah. But, but here's the interesting thing is that that opens the door to how to undo Scientology. Yes, that's right. Which is, and I've done this with people. Um, you say, um, there's more to it than this, but you say, is there anything that Hubbard said that you disagree with or that wasn't, wasn't true for you, as they say, you know? Yep. And then people go, mm, uh, I don't know. Let's just think, is there anything at all that Hubbard said or Miscavige said or anything in the running of Scientology or anything that you disagree with? And they go, well, yeah, I disagree with this. And if you press it, the floodgates open. And they start going, well, I disagree with this. And, oh, this is wrong. And blah, 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 blah. And then they're out. That's right. Uh, that's, yeah. that's basically the anatomy of an intervention. Yeah. Basically. I mean, there's a lot other complications to it and other things that can happen. But that conversation, that, that process of the person opening up and realizing that there are things they can, they, that first that they can disagree with. Yes. And, and then realizing that they do have some disagreements because often they'll, they'll suppress the shit out of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? So you're providing a safe space for them to be able to communicate these things. And I'm glad we're getting right into this because this is the exact advice I've been sort of giving. I like the way you put it. I want to I want to I want to steal that a little bit because because um, I think your description of it is a lot more straightforward than my attempts at it have been. In that, I've tried to tell people, look, what you want to do is you want to find that chink in the armor. You want to find, you, and you want to develop it. 
But to develop yeah. it in a non-manipulative fashion means you have to be in good, real communication with the person. It's not a rote process. It's not a formula. It is you really caring, really interested, really talking to the individual in front of you and not a stereotype that you have built up in your own head about this person you're talking to. And I'm talking about Scientologists. I'm talking about Trumpsters. I'm talking about liberals. I'm talking about anybody, any belief set. That's how you do it. Yeah, yeah. And there's an introductory section of it, which I, I do as follows. I say, and you can always get agreement from Scientologists if you quote LRH, obviously. Right. <laughs> so so I say, uh, listen, LRH said that it's only uh, true in Scientology if it's true for you, right? And they'll go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's good. You got them nodding. You know? <laughs> and, then, and then I say, um, okay, so what LRH says is that you should take each datum in Scientology and put it in one of two bins. This is real for me. This is not real for me. I say, is that, did you say that's, that's how you should be studying Scientology? And they go, yes. Oh, yes, that's exactly. And I say, okay, tell me something that's in your not real for me, Ben. Nice. Nice approach. I like that. Yeah, that's yeah. very that really slips in. You know, here's how I, I don't know if we've talked about this, you and I particularly, maybe you've heard me say this before, but you know, you're dealing with a thought fortress. Yeah, you're, you're dealing with walls that this person has built up mentally. Uh, because, you know, odds are, if you're attack, if you're tackling a Scientologist or a cult member, you're not the first to challenge them. You're not the first to say, hey, that sounds whack, right? And that those kind of statements build these these thought fortresses, these walls around the person's belief set. And my point with that, the reason I use that as an analogy is I'm trying to make the point that you can batter on those walls with your facts and evidence and reason all day long and get nowhere. You will not move the okay. needle. Because they have an answer for everything. Exactly. And, yeah. and, even, and the answers that they will give to you don't have to make sense to you. They make sense yeah. to the person, and that's as far as they need to think about it. So yeah. what you have to do and what you've described beautifully here in this, in this way you go about this is you have to be invited in. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And you'll yeah. never – and how many people are you going to invite into your house – who are yelling and screaming names at you and insulting you and telling you how stupid you are. <laughs> yeah. Plus right. they're ready. They're ready for that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. They're prepared for that. You know, they're right. prepared for you to be antagonistic. And if you're not antagonistic, well, they're not prepared for that. That's and if right. you start quoting Hubbard at them, they're really not prepared for that. You know? <laughs> well, this is why Debbie <laughs> Cook's email was so, uh, was so brilliantly put together, I would say. It was a bit long. You know, it could have been shorter, but but she, but she, most of it was taken up with L. Ron Hubbard quotes. Yes, yes. You know? They can't, they can't argue with that. Yeah. Exactly. And she was quoting word for word, exact scriptures, exact, you know, issues from Hubbard that said exactly what they said and showed very clearly that David Miscavige was doing things that were completely contrary 
to what Hubbard said. And Hubbard's stuff wasn't, you know, the 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 apotheosis of common sense and reason. Well, Hubbard Hubbard contradicted himself so many times. <laughs> oh, hilariously so. Yeah. But, it still is a formula that works, and we saw mass defections from Scientology after the Debbie Cook letter for exactly that reason. Yes, yes, absolutely. So you wanted to, you reached out to me because you wanted to talk about this kind of thing about, you know, stupid people falling for stuff. And uh, this has certainly been a topic I have addressed before and have no problem addressing again because it has so much applicability to current events. Mm -hmm. It does. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, particularly when new people come on to one of the Scientology forums, like the Leah Remini group, and there have been a lot of new people on there because the series went on Netflix, and you hear the same sort of question or statement over and over again, how could anybody be so stupid yes. as to fall for Scientology? And, of course, that's insulting to any of us. <laughs> Of us who <laughs> fell for it. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, the truth is, and I know this because I was on the marketing end of things, Scientology um, targets smart people. That's right. They don't, tar they don't target stupid people. What use would a stupid person be to Scientology? That's right. No use at all. They want smart people to run their organizations and do all of that stuff. And that seems kind of counterintuitive because why go after smart people if you've got this cockamamie cult? And, um, but it's, it's smart to go after, after smart people. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I'm reminded of um, Harry Houdini who once said that smart people are easier to fool than stupid people. Did he? Did he, did he say that? Because I've said yes. that many times. I didn't know I was, uh, I, I was paralleling Houdini. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Houdini said that. And, you know, that idea has got me thinking because, of course, that's who we targeted in all of the Scientology marketing was college-educated people. Yep. Um, and the reason we did that is that and the statistics may have changed since I was working in this area, but only 11% of the U.S. population reads more than one book in a year. Wow, that few. I knew it was small, but I didn't realize it was that small. It is very small. And if you take fiction out of that, it's even smaller. Oh, so we're dealing God. with a very, very tiny wedge of the population who, who can even read a book, you say. Right. Um, so, and, and you say, why is that important? Well, I think, um, and you've had some contact with flat earthers, right? Oh, yes. And we tend to think flat earthers, they must be so stupid. But actually, I think that they're very smart mm -hmm. because they have so many spinning plates to, to, to balance. Um, and, you know, and their cosmology is so intricate yep. and, and so entangled, but it, it, it has an internal logic to it. That's right. So That's right. 
it, so it takes some intelligence to understand that complex system and then be able to explain it to somebody else and to then rebuff all of the standard uh, questions that people have. What, what about sunsets? What about stars? What about seasons? You know, and they all, oh, well, the answer to that is this. And the answer to that is this. They've got it all in their heads. So I think these people have to be pretty smart to balance all those plates in the air. I agree with you. And in fact, this actually speaks to the intelligence controversy because IQ and personality testing is a, I mean, I've done the deep dive on the research on that when I was putting my OCA video together to explain the, you know, the, the personality test. And this is an incredibly difficult topic. It is not any walk in the park to figure out how to define and then measure accurately someone's quote unquote intelligence. And, yeah. and also, mind you, in the course of putting those tests together, be able to control for guessing, be able to control for somebody, you know, faking and, and all kinds of stuff. Like with the personality test, that's even more of a problem than IQ tests. Yeah. So, and of course, the thing about human personality, different from IQ, but probably related, mm -hmm. is that it changes almost moment to moment as your emotional state changes, as your hunger state changes, as your sleep state changes. So mm -hmm. personality in the morning can be very different from personality in the afternoon, in the evening, right? So we, sure. so, so we, people tend to not look at these, 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 these complexities, but I do because I've, I've had to, I've had to study this stuff. And the, where I'm going with this is that IQ is a complicated thing. Yes. But you're measuring, like you just described, the ability of a brain to associate connections correctly mm -hmm. or accurately based on the data to hand, mm -hmm. to, do the, to do calculations based on those connections and form conclusions as a result. I mean, that is a basic skill set of what we call intelligence. And yeah. And measuring that's one thing, but then seeing it applied in the real world when you throw in the added variable of emotional investment. Yeah, yeah. That's when all bets are off because very smart people can, can use that skill to rationalize or justify belief in a completely ridiculous thing that could never be true. Right, right. Right. But the thing, the thing about... Hubbard is that he devised this very complex system with so many moving parts, mm -hmm. but it's all internally consistent. It's all internally within itself, you know, logical and consistent. Yeah. And as long as, Hubbard, you don't, as long as you don't push, as long as you don't ask too many questions around the edges. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, as yeah. long as you are, you know, like he said, looking for something you agree with and looking for another thing you agree with. And this, this construct basically then builds itself in your head. Yeah. You know, and it, it, um, and Albert always said, get them to read a book. Mm. You know, he says, it says, if you want to get people in Scientology, get them to read a book. And, um, that worked because I started, I took that literally and I started selling books, selling the Dianetics book, which is a complete, cohesive system mm -hmm. and sure enough people started coming into the org and that was the the late 80s uh boom that's right that's right well, which was pretty much the last real boom of scientology 
Yeah, it's been declining ever since. That's yeah. right. That was the last hurrah. And that was that was sort of a uh, echo of the hurrah from the 70s where things were really, really legitimately in a boom period for Scientology until Hubbard. Oh, yeah. And the GO totally, you know, messed it all up and, and you know, and sort of cut the cut the foundations out from the from the bottom and everything kind of started collapsing. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but when you get a person to get the book and read the book, then when they come in, they already have that construct in their head. That's right. And it's easy then to put them under the spell. That's right. Plus, it filters. I, you, you, I'm sure this occurred to you that it was a filtering process as well, because people who won't read books, can't read books, well, they're right out the door. They're not. We're not even looking at them or interested in them. And for the most part, we weren't because people who oh. can't or won't read books generally aren't making the big bucks. Right. Generally can't. speaking, generally yeah. speaking, there's always exceptions to this. I am not in any way, you know, down on people who are not educated and saying they they can't accomplish anything in life. I'm saying sure. that that statistically, in in a broad sense. The, the job of marketing is not just to appeal to people, but to appeal to a certain set of people. Right. Yeah, totally. It's a niche, a niche market. And I, I was doing a lot of things which are common in the marketing industry, but that Scientology had never heard of. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, for instance, I took the international address list. This was completely forbidden for me to do this. You know, it's just... <laughs> I took I took that address uh, that that uh, list of um, of Scientologists and I got it onto a, a you know computer disk and I turned it over to a company that specializes in demographics. Ah, and this and, was verboten. You were not supposed to do this. No, you can't send those mailing lists anywhere. You know that's completely forbidden. But um, but I managed to get this done and they ran them through their computers, their databases, which have all kinds of other variables in them. Mm -hmm. And they came back to me and they said, okay, we have your, your demographic. What is the, what is the demographic profile of a Scientologist? And we found out it was college educated, about 60% male, uh, 25 to 35. Mm -hmm. uh, with, and some college education, you know? Interesting. And so the, I took that to then to my media company and I said, this is my target market. Give me a media buy that reaches those people. <clears throat> and that was a huge factor in selling as many books as we did because we were appealing to those people who were most likely to become Scientologists, just demographically. Exactly. And that's the, and that's marketing 101. And yet interesting to me that Scientology had built up for two decades prior, three decades prior to you doing this on its on on whatever other half assed approach they were taking. And I'm curious, you know, because you got involved in the marketing business of Scientology in the 70s, actually late 60s, early 70s. Right. Well, that's when I joined staff. Uh, yeah, I was. It, yeah, I was initially. Uh, putting together magazines and brochures and flyers and that sort of thing, which is a bit different. Yes. When you get into running a big uh, national ad campaign, 
you, you pretty much have to get scientific. Yeah. yeah, well, that's what I was wondering, because it's not like that was the first time Scientology ran big ad campaigns, but you were doing standard industry practices. What were they doing before is what I guess I'm curious about. Um, just a lot of seat of the pants. They would put together some ads based on Hubbard's advices or something like that, and then just kind of like throw them out there with no real media strategy. Right. And they and those campaigns always failed. And Miscavige had run one, a limited campaign. I think it was only the San Diego area. Um, and they had done these TV ads that had the, the men in the white space suits. You know, that whole thing? Yeah. What, <laughs> what, when was this? When, when, when was this that they did this? Uh, this must have been in the late 70s, or early 80s. Okay, so this is actually kind of new to me. I didn't know about the San Diego campaign. What was this space outfit thing? What were they doing? Well, they were trying to, you know, the, uh, on the cover of Evolution of the Science, the spacemen. Yep. That was part supposed to be part of the R6 symbolism. Okay, okay. And for people out there, R6, we're talking about reactive mind. We're talking about a part of your mind that is subconscious, controls you without you being aware of it, according to Hubbard's theories. There's there's nothing in psychology quite exactly validating Hubbard's theories. It, it is not true, but this is how Hubbard approached things. And he said that this reactive mind was, was an all-powerful mechanism over human behavior. Yeah, and it had been implanted by space people millions of years ago with right. these pick with these exact pictures and so when you put those exact pictures on the covers of books people are supposed to it's supposed to attract people to get the book and you know and have the book you know right they're supposed they, the the idea here is that they are literally supposed to have a subliminal kind of impulse to purchase the material and they don't even necessarily know why Right, right. And that's why the volcano was on the cover of Dianetics. <laughs> exactly. Same, same thing. Story. <laughs> it's wild, isn't it? Because prior to 1967, prior to the whole Xenu thing, Dianetics was just, a, it, it was marketed more like a textbook. There weren't, there weren't uh, uh, volcanoes on the cover. It, it had more like just generic symbols and stuff on the cover. It wasn't. Yeah, I think the original edition had, was green and it had white spots on yep. it or something. That's right. It was put out uh, by a textbook manufacturer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what it looked like. Yeah, it looked like a textbook. Yeah, but then Hubbard had this epiphany in 67. And <laughs> it's funny, you and I corresponded about this because somebody asked me about it recently in a Q&A. And this business is, this was really serious. This wasn't just a one-off that you just described. Hubbard actually uh, sort of focused Scientology's marketing efforts thinking that this subliminal kind of you know impulse you know this implant sort of thing would 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 really make scientology take off it was a very very strange idea it was one of his strangest i thought yeah yeah exactly every marketing idea that hubbard had is manipulative yes you know the survey technology was supposed to be find the button and you press the button and they come in you know um you know, you find their tone level and then you go half a tone to a tone above and you can control them. And it was all about manipulating and controlling, you know, the, the audience. 
That's right. Because Hubbard, yeah. because Hubbard's base assertion, and you tell me if you agree with me on this, it seems to me from, from all the things I heard him say, that it seemed he had a pretty low opinion of people. And he seemed to be convinced from his quote unquote research that um, that people were basically uh, he wrote as much that people were basically walking around in a hypnotic days. Yes, he said that. Yeah. Yeah. And that you have to impinge on them to get them to come into Scientology. And it's only through Scientology processing that they will snap to wake up and realize. Yeah. Yeah. And that that was the basis of, you know, so-called hard sell. That's right. Buy this book get this course, and you had to have those commands. The headlines had to be commands, you know, buy this book. And you look through Scientology magazines and it's just the craziest thing. (laughs) Buy this book, do this course, you know, know? that's right. That's right. It is a lot of commanding. And that's, and that is exactly in alignment with, with what Hubbard wrote in marketing about how to talk to the raw public, he called them or the wogs. Yeah. Yeah. So this this San Diego campaign was totally based on that idea. Show these guys in these space uniforms. I don't know if you remember back when AOLA staff had to dress in those uniforms. I do, back in the early 70s. And yeah. silver helmets. I mean, it looked ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Totally. And that was under Captain Bill, who was himself quite a piece of work. Yes. <laughs> yes. If there was anybody who I could point to as the poster child of somebody who really bought everything Hubbard had to say, it was Captain Bill. <laughs> when he was on the ships, he used to, at night, uh, what they would be doing, um, uh, learning celestial navigation, you know, with the tools and all that stuff. And he would start telling space opera st- stories <clears throat> about how they, you know, the aliens are out there and they're, you know, the, the Confederation is doing this and doing that and so forth and just have everybody spellbound, you know. It was amazing. And this is, I think, where Hubbard's science fiction <laughs> history really came to the fore. I'm curious, um, did you, you know, I was in Scientology a long time. You were in Scientology even longer. Did you, over all those years, dive into the cosmology? Did you try to figure it out? Because I did. And it was difficult because it was so piecemeal. He would drop a line here. He would give a paragraph of information about Markab and the free being. He would drop a line in Scientology and effective knowledge about some space opera thing. Or, you know, the two-way communication lecture from the briefing course where he goes on a mad tear for a while about about the Helvetrobus implants. And, right, and and the invader forces and, and the different the different schedule of invader forces and I I was fascinated by all that of course yeah it was fascinating wasn't it did you ever get to the role of Earth oh yeah yeah actually when I was first getting into Scientology at the LA Org in '68 they played role of Earth to raw public really yeah oh well, of course they, they didn't let me hear a word about anything like that for a few months. Before, 
I got played RJ67 fairly early on, but the fantastic thing about RJ67 is is the conspiracy theory more so than the great disaster of 76 million years ago because they, they don't really get into it too much. They only drops this one line and then you're riding around the ore going, what, what, what disaster? What is he talking about? Well, you got to get up to OT3 to find out. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> my God. So... <laughs> That was that kind of sucked in my experience. But over all those years, I tried so hard to put a cosmology together that would make some sense. And there were contradictions and there were problems. And, you know, even to the point, the thing that really threw me was when I read History of Man, where he goes into some pretty, you know, crazy stuff. Um, you know, that was one of the first books I read. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there you go. Because in the time you got in, in the early late 60s, early 70s, that was frontline material and the culture changed. Yes, yes. You know, and the spiritualism and everything else kind of went by the wayside and, and they got a lot more more mind and practical and tool set for life and this kind of Technology, thing. Technology, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, the, in the 80s, that's, that changed. Yeah. But but I was just kind of curious about, did you ever feel that you had a coherent whole in your mind about where the, uh, uh, about the backtrack, so to speak, about the space opera stuff? Because it, to me, it always, really. felt, it always felt like a patchwork. It, it was a patchwork. And I think that was because Hubbard was kind of making it up as he went along. You yeah, know? exactly. And then, then he would make up something about, you know, the second invader force, and that would be in a lecture. And you'd go, wait, that there was a second one? Well, what was the first one? What was the third one? You know, I've heard about the fifth invaders. What was about the fourth? What about the third? That's I had all those questions, you know. Exactly. I think the only place I ever saw anyone seriously start putting it together was the recruiters. Hmm. Uh, Derek Faust specifically, and I'll say his name. He's he's out of the church, at, at, out of the Sea Org now. I think he's still a believer. Um, but he put together a whole PowerPoint, a whole series of PowerPoint presentations. And the last one, the big cherry on top, the confidential one that they, they would only hit the new recruit with if everything else up to that point hadn't cracked him yet, was the face opera fantasy drawing from all these quotes, including the invader forces, Markab, the Galactic Confederation, everything stopping, you know, Derek didn't, I don't know, not, um, uh, not, was it, no, Brandon Faust, not Derek Faust, it was Brandon Faust. Hmm. He, he was the best, he was the single best Sea Org recruiter on planet Earth. The guy recruited <laughs> thousands of Sea Org members in his career. But the PowerPoint was sort of the, the 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 pinnacle of his of his career was putting this together and sharing it with us other Sea Org recruiters. And I went around for a year recruiting people with this stuff. Wow. And it was deep conspiracy theory and it was 9-11 truther stuff. And it was the space opera stuff as the cherry on top, where it was like, look, man, we're not just facing problems here on Earth. There are forces outside this planet that want to do away with Scientology. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and you perhaps said, I can't believe to this day that I, with a straight face, actually delivered this briefing to people and actually believed it myself. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah, you just... well, I, well, I think there's, there was a reason why Hubbard back in the 50s was targeting science fiction fans I agree. Um, because they're educated smart people 
But there's one other factor, which, um, and I got into this factor as well when I was doing the church marketing, which is what I call seekers. People who were looking for answers. That's right. And, and you have to be a seeker if you're going to get into Scientology or into a lot of other things, you know, uh, flat earth, you name it. Because, um, and this gets back to the smart versus stupid. Mm -hmm. You're only going to get a smart person interested in flat earth because a stupid person doesn't care. They don't care. There's earth flat, round. I don't care. It has no impact on their life whatsoever. Yeah. That's right. So they're not going to get, um, they're not going to get interested in it, but you know, um, and you, you know, uh, you know, it's true that if you're arguing with a flat earther, you practically have to have a degree in astrophysics to, you know, to counter their arguments because they are so complex and so, you know, tortured and so forth. That's right. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but a stupid person, they don't care. Flat, round, right. I, don't, I, I don't care, you know. Right. You have to have that curiosity and you have to have wondered about the shape of the earth. Like, is it really round? How do people know that it's round, you know? That's the, that's the key question right there. That's the one yeah. of those people. Because they go, well, wait a minute. How do I know it's round? Well, because I was told, because they don't really understand all the science of it. Nor do you have to. It's not It's yeah. not something that affects your day to day. So that's why most people couldn't care less. But these folks are like, well, wait a second. If that means that they told me lies in school, oh, my God, the conspiracy yeah. must be so vast and overwhelming. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And the other, <laughs> the other thing I think you might find, which is a harder to isolate and harder to describe character trait but it's there is this desire to want to have this this is the secret knowledge mm. yes to have the inside scoop right yeah, to, to be smarter than everybody else yes they and more important because because you you are one of the bearers of the true the true knowledge you know? that's right it's a status button and it is a um uh, superiority button. I guess I guess those are the same thing. Yeah, it gives you staff yeah. superiority. So, yeah. So that's a that's another little factor in there too. But that's something that's developed over time. Like we talk about in Scientology, how it kind of creates a narcissistic headspace. Um, yeah. That's how it does it because it continually Hubbard is continually telling his followers how they are the upper crust, the smarter people, the upper 10th of the upper 20th of, uh, of human populations. Are, you know, those, those are all the auditors, right? And, yeah, yeah. and to speak to your assertion about the smart thing, let me say one other thing about this, which is I trained auditors for well over a decade uh, between staff and Sea Org. And you are not going to become an auditor if you're a stupid person. Right, right, yeah. It's too it, many moving parts. Way yeah. too many between, and especially when you graduate up to the professional where you got the e-meter and you're having to keep the worksheets and you're running processes that have multiple commands and you know you got to keep track of all this stuff and you know all the PCs, signs and indicators and all that stuff. I mean, there's a, like you said, there's all kinds of spinning plates in an yeah. session and it takes 
hours and days and weeks and months to learn how to do that. And I'll tell you, I, there were some people that you just really couldn't train to do it. And it wasn't because they were too smart. It was the opposite. They couldn't hold those many thoughts together in their head at one time and put it all together. Yeah. So, so there is, the, I, I really believe that what you're saying is absolutely true about this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when, when my media company first started bringing me television buys, uh, and, and there would be certain uh, TV shows that they would be buying because they fit the demographic I had given them. And they brought me a, a buy one time, never forget it, and it had Saturday morning cartoons. And, and I said, what's this? Why are you recommending placing ads in Saturday morning cartoons? They said, well, it's exactly your demographic. It's males, uh, 24 to to 35 and I'm going <laughs> and I said okay <laughs> those are the ones watching the Bugs Bunny cartoons the Bugs Bunny yeah exactly <laughs> and I sat I sat them down and I said listen to me I do not want to talk to people who watch Saturday morning cartoons <laughs> I, I do not want to talk to those people I don't care if it's the right demographic right I, I said you bring me programming lists and I'll tell you the programming to buy so they brought me lists of programming. And one of them I remember was um, Twilight Zone reruns. And I said, yes, there you that's, go. My, yeah. that's my guy right there. That's my guy. Yeah, that's right. That's you nailed it. You got it. Yeah, you were good at yeah. your job. No question about it. How <laughs> I, I got to ask, I mean, you did this for years. How um, and, and we've talked about your history. We don't need to get into re, you know, rehashing everything you've already said. But I but yeah. I'm curious structurally sort of on the day to day of the of, of international marketing of Scientology. You, you know, there are very few people to ask about this at this point. Yeah. And OK, so you're part of this, you know, international marketing unit. Uh, central marketing unit it had different names over the years, yeah. and this unit was it was working at the gold base. This is the in you know San Jacinto, the behind the, yep. the the big fences and everything. And this is in the eighties when Miscavige was pretty much there most of the time. Is that right? Right. Yes. Yes. So how often, you know, we know the stories of him, you know, holding these meetings and abusing the shit out of people and beating you up and other people. And it's and it was just a disgusting situation, no matter how you slice it. Yeah. What I'm a little curious about, though, is on the day to day to day to day, how often was Miscavige coming around into your area or did you have some kind of semblance of a command structure between you and Miscavige? You know, how often and how often was he violating that command structure? Um, yeah, there were endless echelons of um, bureaucrats, you know, mm -hmm. it just went up, 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 up. And um, and yeah, see, every day would start with your senior coming around and going over your battle plan mm -hmm. with you. And then their senior would come around and change that. And then the okay. and then the then the CMO programs operators would come around and they would change it again, right? Yeah, right. And this would go on and on until you know three in the afternoon, and then it would be everybody rushed down to the conference room for a meeting with COB, and oh. then everything got thrown out, you know, right? And it was whatever 
orders he issued at the meeting. And the meeting would generally break up in the evening sometime. And we would have to get a submission on his desk first thing in the morning, which meant no sleep. Right. Yeah. Right. And then you would sit on these submissions for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. So you brought, brought, it's like, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait for, at his pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was uh, last there, which was in the early 2000s, we were putting together um, what we were calling the basics, Mm -hmm. you know, all the books and and lectures, which I I think was called the milestones or something after that, or the basics. They were they were called the basics. We called them the basics when they came the out. Basics, yeah. yeah that that yeah. first initial wave of all of the basic books of Scientology and the lectures that accompanied them. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were we were putting together all the materials for that release, and we would we we had put together a catalog of all of that stuff, mm. and then we would submit that at some point during the day, and then we would all get called to a meeting, and he would just rip it to shreds. It's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. Um, and you have to fix it. And, and, and this is wrong with it. And this is wrong with it. And I want it on my desk in the morning. And then we work through the night, get it onto his desk, maybe get two hours or three hours sleep, if that. And then back on back on deck right after lunch. You know? Right. And another and meeting a, at three o'clock. Another meeting at three o'clock that goes on into the evening. Yeah. Right. And he, you know, he so, these, go ahead. I was going to say these meetings were just endless. He would just, he was kind of like Hubbard in that he could talk and talk and talk for hours and really saying nothing and often contradicting himself through the course of that. And then his minions would transcribe the whole thing because everything was taped. They would transcribe it and then they would issue it in transcription form to every person who had been at the meeting and then you had to word clear it. Oh wow, was that consistent all the time with his rant, yeah. with his with his with his ravings? Oh yeah, yeah. my god. I knew I thought that was only every now and again. Yeah, no. Oh. This was all the time. And what? I had I had thick binders full of his bullshit. Just on on my on my shelf, thick binders of all of his meetings, you know? Wow. And we would have to go back through them and highlight them. And, and they were so contradictory. Well, hard. I'll tell you, I've seen those, not the ones you're referring to, but at Bridge Publications. Yes. He did the same drill. He would, he, he, he micromanaged the, the uh, acquisition, um, renovation and then and then creation of the production line of books and lectures the the cds yeah took two years it took two years of back and forth and inspections and working this out and working that out to get all the kinks worked out to basically create a public an in-house publishing facility that would produce products that admittedly speaking were quite good i mean i worked on that line myself for nine months the books were incredible quality yeah, yeah, great quality, but they were they were out of date almost the minute they hit hit the shelves, because they didn't start CDs until well into the CD boom. That's right. And by the time they got those CDs out on the market, it was MP3s and 
everything else. That's right, know? and DVDs. That's right, and yeah. to this day, they're still mainly producing MP, you know, uh, these these CDs as the lectures. They haven't even they haven't even bumped up the game to the DVDs at that level. Yeah. Much less. Oh, here's a question for you. This is one I get asked all the time, and I really don't have a good answer to it, which is why I've put off answering it for all this time. But I'm 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 curious about your take on this. Um, uh, and then I'll get back to the, the binders at Bridge, because we had those same kind of binders of COB transcripts yes. of his orders at the Bridge level. And they had multiple binders of this. Yes, yes. So, so I want to make that point. But why is it, do you think, that we do not see any Scientology books? We see Hubbard's fiction works, but we don't see one iota of his, not of his, of his Scientology stuff on digital media. Ebooks, um, e ebooks, and e lectures, right? You don't see those. You can't purchase digital download copies of Dianetics uh, off of Amazon or ebook formatted Evolution of a Science. It's only the hard copies. Right, right. Do you have any idea why they would be putting the kibosh on that? Because it's clearly Amazon. I mean, this is clearly a market. Well, yeah. And for instance, with my book, I sell far more ebooks than physical books. I'm yeah, sure I think I have too. I think I have. Yeah, yeah audiobooks as well. And they yeah. have audiobook versions of many of these things, but not available through download. Yeah, I think they're afraid of pirating or people making copies or mm. something like that. It seems um, an odd. Thing yeah. Because cause pretty much piracy at this point is the cost of doing business in the digital domain. It's just going to happen and you're just going to deal with it. But you're going to make a lot more profit than you're going to lose to the pirates. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll reach far more people. I mean, they have these fixed ideas. Like when I started the Dianetics campaign, uh, for instance, because Hubbard had said, people only believe hardbacks, always push the hardbacks. That's right, he did. That's right. Yeah. So when, when Miscavige did his uh, TV campaign in San Diego, just before my campaign, they were pushing the hardback. And they sold next to nothing, I'm telling you. And so when I started my campaign, I said, we're going to market the paperback. And everybody was looking, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't, you can't market the paperback. And so I gave them the sales figures and the this and the that and and I said, listen, do you want to sell a lot of books or do you not? Right. This, is, this is the cold, hard facts. And finally, I was able to get an okay. I think they had to petition Hubbard or something. And, and, and he said, okay, you know? Wow. But, um, and so I said, yes, it's got to be the paperback because I can get that paperback into so many more outlets than hardbacks. Hardbacks is bookstores paperbacks is you know every Plant pantry and every every uh every mini mart you know on and on and on and on and on you could get those books anywhere that you that you want so i said we have to do a paperback and i finally got that through but it took a lot of pers perseverance and a lot of um i used to be a master at finding lrh references to back up what I was going to do anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all kind of had to learn that skill a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I was I was able to push that through. Well, why don't they do ebooks? It's the same 
argument. Nobody, nobody has said to them, listen, do you want to sell books? Do you want to reach people or not? Uh, right. If you want to reach more people and if you want to make some more money, ebooks is the way to go. And nobody has pounded that home because they have no marketing people left. Well, that's that I wanted to go there with you because I'm wondering now, you know, I have said and I I this could be a fundamental attribution error on my part. And if so, I'm willing to own it, okay? Right. I'm not sure. So, I'm going to ask you and and I don't know that you have a definitive answer either, but let's talk about it. And that is Miscavige's desire to actually expand Scientology. Um I have posited in no uncertain terms that I believe he is not interested in expanding Scientology's numbers the same way that you were, the same way that Hubbard honestly was. I mean, of all the things you can say about Hubbard, he very much wanted Scientology to expand. Yes. And yes. he was all <laughs> about the numbers of that. Yeah. Miss and he, he, he kind of knew how to do it, too. Well, he did. He had some savvy. Yeah. Uh, Miscavige doesn't seem to have that. He never had a public life or a public world or professional experience. He went as a 16-year-old into the Sea Org, and, and he's been in that world ever since. Yes, and he's, ne he's never run a mission or an org, which right. I think is a key point. That's never. Right. He has no clue uh, exactly. about how things really work. You know? That's right. And we ran into that at every echelon of management. Um, you know, I came from an org. I had org exec experience, but I had not run an org. And I could quickly see in the management division how much of a liability that was for the managers and, and how it was very rarely, if ever, commented on. Especially yeah. when you had 13-year-old girls running around who, who absolutely knew they, that they knew better than you did. Even yeah. if you had run an org or had run a course room or had run a, an HGC or delivery unit, which I had done, these girls knew everything more about it than I did. And I would always laugh because eventually, eventually, almost like karma, these girls or these little boys would end up. It was mostly girls because it was CMO. I, I don't, I'm not meaning to pick on girls specifically, but that's just who populated CMO. And almost one for one, they ended up having to go condition one or phase one on a situation, and they, meaning they had to personally take it over and run it themselves. And then yeah. you saw that they were utterly clueless about what they were doing. <laughs> utterly clueless, right? Yeah, yeah. But getting back to Miscavige, I, you know, the reason I say fundamental attribution error is because I'm, I'm asserting that David Miscavige personally isn't interested in expanding Scientology's numbers. But it occurs to me in talking to you and having forgotten the, the power of the fixed datum in Scientology that people can get this idea and nothing will move it. It's like an anchor. It just stays there. Like, yeah. how, and an example is you have to sell hardcover books. That's a great example of, of, a, of, a, of a specific Hubbard policy. He definitely said it. And you could take that and run with it to never market soft cover books, right? Which, yeah. they, were, which they were very busy doing until you came along. Yeah. So it, so it occurs to me as I talk to you now that maybe there's just so many fixed ideas and plain incompetence involved in the marketing and lack of probably at this point, lack of actually people even doing the work. Yeah. That I wonder if it's not David Miscavige's personal you know, uh, lack of desire to expand Scientology, but truly just plain incompetence and inability to do so. Yes, yes. I, and I, I agree with that. 
he he is you know abysmally incompetent in that area mm. he does not know anything he does not know the first thing about advertising or marketing mm. and when i ran that campaign in the 80s and up to the early 90s and got dianetics back on the new york times bestseller list mm-hmm. he hated me wow wow uh, and that's and that's the crazy part that's the part where yeah. things really get crazy yeah yeah he absolutely hated he hated anyone who could do things that he couldn't wow you know? Interesting. there was there was one time and and this hatred intensified there was one time that he decided to iq test the entire base, not with not with Scientology IQ tests, but to bring in some professional IQ testing people. Really? Whoa! That yeah, oh yeah, blind psychology. Whoa! Look out! <laughs> <laughs> so he he did that, and everyone had to take um, a proper IQ test, and this was professionally administered and evaluated on all that sort of thing. Wow! Well. I, I was the number two highest IQ on the base. That, cement, that cemented my fate. All right, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he wanted to know who his competition was. I think you're right. I think yeah. that's exactly why he did that, because that's the kind of calculations behind the narcissistic mind. And, that is, yeah. and, and, and there's no question at this point that that is where Miscavige lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And after that, he was just merciless with me. Wow. You know, constant verbal abuse. Every time he saw me, just constant taunting and verbal abuse. And then that turned into physical abuse, shoving me, knocking me down, hitting me, you know, whatever he could do. You know? Wow. Do you and, happen to know if he took the test? I don't know. Probably not. I'm wondering if he maybe did it privately, right? Just so he would see where he was at compared to everybody else. Like, that's the kind of thing I could see him doing. Yeah. You know, but I wonder, I wonder. He's, uh, or maybe, or on the other hand, he could have simply assumed he was at the top of the list and, and known that that was true and that would have been that. Yeah, yeah. I think he more or less assumed he was the top, the top person. Right. But I'll, I'll never forget one time he came down to the marketing area and he just walked up to me and... I think he hit me and knocked me flat on my back on the ground. Wow. And then he said, he said to me, do you know why I did that? And I'm like, no, sir, I don't know why you did that. And he said, to show you who's boss. Right. There you go. That's it. There you go. I think that was the most honest thing he ever said to me. (laughs) I think that's true. I think that's that's exactly true because that was his game. He's a tough guy. Yeah, he's a tough guy in a little tiny body. Yeah, you yeah. know, and he and he flexes those muscles, and he wants you to know, and he wears those tight shirts, and he wants you to know he's the man. He's the tough guy. Yeah, you know, it was another another time he was standing next to me talking to another person, Rick Cruz, and I think or somebody, and he said, he said, look at him pointing to me, and he said, he really wants to to hit me. He really wants to punch me. He said. I wish he would, because then I could really take him down. Wow. Wow. And just think about in any organization anywhere in the world, military or otherwise, 
what that kind of behavior, what those kind of statements from the top leadership do to the morale of the entire organization. Everybody within earshot of that is affected. Yeah, yeah. You know? Exactly. But again, they don't see it. You know, I was I was beat up by him in a meeting, laying on the ground, and people were just like, what, what are you doing on the ground, you know? Right. Yeah, it's all why you. Don't, why don't you get up, you know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> You're literally laying there hurt. Yeah, yeah. It, got, it got pretty crazy there. Do you think, you know, he's not on, he's not at the int base a whole lot anymore. We're, you know, this is all just conjecture, of course, on our part. But I, but I, I you know, I, I'm always for, down for educated conjecture. Sure. <laughs> he seems to be spending a lot of time at Flag now. Yeah. Do you think as a result of all of the exposure, and there has certainly been no shortage of it, you know, be, between uh, Going Clear and every other book and, and your books and my books and everything else, um, do you think with all this exposure over, let's say, the last 15, 16 years, do you think he's changed or do you think he's at flag now just beating the shit out of everybody over there? I think he, uh, well, Number one, he hates the end base mm -hmm. with a passion. He hates that place, mm. obviously, because he's, you know, done so much evil there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so he can't face the people there because he is, he doesn't want to be there. He hates being there, uh, which is fine with the people who work there. I'll tell you, he used to leave the base periodically and there would be this collective sigh of relief. And then, then we would get the word months later or whatever that he was coming back, he's coming back. And it was like that scene in Devil Wears Prada. Do you remember that movie? Yes. Where uh, whoever it is comes running through saying, gird your loins, people. Like she was coming back, right? She was coming through. And it was that way. It was just like panic, just utter panic at the base at the thought that he was coming back. You know? yep. Nobody, nobody wanted him there. He didn't want to be there. You know? I think- yeah. we, Well, we had, the, we had the exact same phenomenon at PAC, except we all had to pretend that we did want him there. Right. Right, because you know, I, I, did you guys ever talk amongst yourselves, maybe after he was gone for a couple months or something, like did it, did it, did things ever loosen up at the base enough for people to do more than nudge, nudge, wink, wink each other about how oppressive he was? Um, you could, you could never talk about that. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. I thought so. E even when he'd been gone for a while, you couldn't, you couldn't talk, um, talk about that. But we did have a couple of sort of running gags mm. just among ourselves. Um, one was, you know, the, the Sea Orc motto. We come, we come yeah. And, and we always said that, that the motto should be, we never leave. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was those sort of jokes, you know. Right, it's, the way, yeah. it's, it's a coping mechanism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you would think, you know, that there are places where humor would just die. But even in the Jewish ghettos, even in the concentration camps, humor lived. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's the only way. Trust me, you and I both know from personal experience, it is the only way to survive the very worst of times.
Yeah, exactly. It, it, now, we, it, uh, we, were, we were blessed in marketing because we had some very funny people that were working in marketing and they would always crack us up. Um, there was one guy, uh, Steve Hall, you may remember oh, the I know name. Steve. Yeah, yeah. He's out, yeah. He's out now. He's out. Um, but he was one of the funniest guys I ever knew. Really? And he, yeah. He had a pair of sunglasses and that we had gotten. We had, we had had a, a group award and gone out to a, a restaurant. And I forget the restaurant, but they had these sunglasses that had white frames that were like candy striped with red. Huh. And so we all got a pair of those, right? And Steve kept his in his desk. And every time that that somebody started was getting chewed out by a senior, he would go like, and those were his protective glasses, right? Wow, wow! <laughs> so everybody, everybody would crack up. You know? Yeah, just something to relieve some tension. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you need it. You need it to survive those times because it's just because, uh, you, you, you know, obviously physically, you know, your brain's getting flooded with stuff that's just really not fun yeah. to experience, you know. Yeah, exactly. Wow. wow. So so it could well be then that the lack of growth of Scientology or what we see in terms of what's prioritized in Scientology and the direction it's going is just really just a straight up reflection of of pure incompetence on the part of Miscavige and whoever else he's got there to expand yeah. Scientology. At this point, he's just decimated the whole situation. Yeah. He was always more interested in the existing field than in new people. Mm. New people are a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. You've got to educate them. You've got to put them through courses. You have to do this. You have to do that. They take a lot of time to develop and um, not much return at the beginning. They're, they're getting 50 bucks, $50 courses, right. um, you know, or they're spending a couple hundred dollars on an academy level or whatever. It's not big bucks. The big bucks are always with the OT levels and with the L's yep. at, at flag. And you want to know why he's at flag? Well, that's where the money is, you know. That's right. That's where the, that's where the money comes in and he can put direct pressure on them um from there but um so he was never interested in new people and i could go to him and i could say well our remember the more info cards in the books yep uh you know if you want more information about dianetics fill in this card and send it in we get thousands of those every week when because we were selling no kidding we were selling up to when it was really going we were selling up to thirty thousand books a week through wow through bookstores and non-scientology outlets not through the orgs nothing to do with the orgs wow this, this was on a complete bypass of the orgs we were selling up to 30,000 books a week that's a lot which that's is a lot. lot of books so we were getting in thousands of these more information cards and sending those out they would go right out to the orgs and a lot of old div sixers have told me that's what was keeping the orgs alive was mm -hmm. that flow of info cards that was their number one source of new people was mm -hmm. those those book buyers you know mm -hmm. that it was a whole machine and um the question and then but miscavige's big beef with me 
was, uh, well, why aren't those people showing up on the academy levels or the upper levels and so forth and so on? Um, and, and he considered the whole Dianetics campaign, despite the success, he considered it to be a waste of money. Wow. Because it was costing more to get that more info card than we made on the book sale. <coughs> and I kept, I did the calculations actually one time when they were trying to offload me. And I did the calculations and I figured that during the period of the campaign, and this was over maybe a four or five year period, I had made an extra $280 million for the church over and above what they would have made without that campaign. And I was able to present that information and a lot of other information and they could not offload me in, in any sort of good conscience, you know? Wow. And yet he sees only, it appears from how you're describing this, and of course my experience with the man, that, he, that it's immediate return or nothing. Right, right. Right? What have you done for me lately? And he doesn't seem to be able, and this is, you know the irony of this, you don't know about this at all, I've, I've never talked about it, but you know one of the RTC representatives, um, I can't remember her name, she was in the Protears film. <laughs> She was uh -huh. long red hair. She was she was she was quite a quite a nice lady as as far as uh, our interactions went. Um, she br did this briefing one time to the pack base management staff, of which I was a part, about production lines, about you know basically assembly line thinking about how yes. there are and, and how there are what you know and and Hubbard's terminology you know you have products and sub products things that will go to contribute to making the ultimate product. If you want somebody to walk in the door, there are sub-products you have to produce in order to make that happen, such yes. as sending out promo, such as selling books, such as getting ads in magazines. I mean, all of that is pre-sub-products to the person walking in the door. Yeah. Then you want a course sign-up. Well, then getting the person to walk in the door is a sub-product to getting the sign-up. You then have to have the person received and, you know, personality test, et cetera, et cetera. She walked us through all this basic business stuff. This isn't complicated stuff by any stretch. We, yeah. of course, received it as revelatory because this isn't how Scientology orgs are operated. Right, right, yeah. Well, everything is now, 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 now. And if it's not right now, nobody cares. So she was trying to introduce this concept as a way to get us to manage these churches with sub-products towards, you know, valuable final products, as Hubbard put right. it. Yeah. And, and I only laugh at the irony of this right now because that was an extended briefing from her that went on and that, that sort of effort went on for probably about a month until it got dropped, right? We got into the demand of everything else, you know, with the pressure coming down the lines and stuff. Yeah. And that was the only time we ever had a little window as when I was a Scientology manager for eight years of actual sanity, of, of, of the idea that you would work on this and then you would work on this and then maybe in a couple weeks, we'll get this. Yeah. So, focus our attention on this so that we can get more of what we want and come out of this week-to-week -week rat race. Yeah, and it's not going to happen right away. It's going to take weeks or months to get this ramped up. You know? That's right. And, you, and she tried to get that across to us, 
But the problem with it was not that not, nothing she was saying was particularly wrong. It was that she was saying it within a system that is structured to reject that kind of thinking. Right. Yeah. Because it's all this week. That's what's right. happening this week, this week, this week. I'll tell you a crazy story. Yeah. Um, Miss Cabbage, he kept getting on me about, well, okay, you're selling all these books, but where are they? They're not in the orgs. Where are they? And I said, you want them in the orgs? Okay. And I started a project. And um, we figured out, number one, they don't know how to do Dianetics. Like in the 1950s, everybody was twinning up and doing the stuff on each other. And these new book buyers were not. Mm. So I wrote a script, a video uh, for a video script, showing step-by-step step how to apply Dianetics. Yeah. Right? You might remember that. You did that. Uh, that was me, yeah. Right, right. I, That's right. You had the whole video. There was a, This was a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, I wrote that. We filmed it. Um, and another thing that has never been done in Scientology marketing, I took it to a focus group. Did and, you? And I focus group tested it. Wow. And we made adjustments based on the focus group, you know? Right. There I, mm -hmm. <laughs> I keep interrupting you because new thoughts keep occurring to me to ask you about. I, I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry, Which, I'm, I'm horrible yeah, I know, at that. I know, you're, you're welcome to question as I go along. Yeah. So, so we had this video and I packaged up with Hubbard's lectures on Dianetics and the book and the video. And that was the Dianetics package. Yep. And then I wrote an infomercial selling the package. I cannot believe you were the guy who put all that together. I knew you had done the Dianetics campaign. I didn't know you'd done those videos and say, I forgot about that if we talked about that before. Damn, man. Yeah, yeah. So I did these, um, I, I, I produced these, uh, this infomercial, and it was based on a lot of input from infomercial people. Mm -hmm. who I was in touch with, like outside. Mm -hmm. uh, one, of the, one of the top infomercial people in the United States was coaching me through the writing of this. You know? wow. And then I, <clears throat> I took it to a, a media firm that had um, experience with infomercial, running infomercials, right? And then I went to um, Omaha, Nebraska, uh, because I had found a telemarketing company and this is, they have a room and it's just uh, operators, hundreds of operators in this one room. And when your infomercial goes on the air, the phone number comes up just on every infomercial call now, you know, call now and get your, get your dynamics package. And that immediately goes to one of these operators and your script comes up on their screen mm -hmm. and all they do is take the orders. That's all they're doing. They're order takers. They didn't really do any sales, sales work. They would just say, you know, credit card number, blah, 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 blah. And it was a machine. You know, it was just a machine that would just take orders, take orders, take orders. And so we started running this. And sometimes nothing would happen, and sometimes we'd get orders. 
And this program went on for, I don't know, six, six or eight months. And we sold during that time over 500 of these kits <coughs> had been sold. So Miscavige is telling me, okay, all very well and good. You're selling the books, you're selling the kits. Where are these people? How do we get them into the orcs? And I said, let me work on that. So I was working with a guy named Phil Anderson. I don't know if you know Phil. I was on the RPF with Phil. I know Phil very well. <laughs> he got he ended up getting busted. <laughs> yeah. Because I was on the RPF with him after all of this went down. But yeah, I remember Phil. Yeah. So he was like my right hand man. Okay. Back in those days. Okay. So um, and he was a very good public speaker. Mm. So we decided, okay, we're going to develop a seminar format. So we worked out all this. It was script, scripted out. Phil would give a talk. We would play the How to Apply Dianetics video. And then we would twin them up and have them do just a simple session with each other. Mm -hmm. Right there. You know? mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, we would uh, take them into the orcs. Yeah. You know? After they'd had a session, they'd experienced a session, you know, mm -hmm. and it, from both ways, you know. And so we started piloting this. Phil and I went to Atlanta and um, rented a hotel room, you know, a big conference room. And we took all of the um, more information cards and sent out a flyer that said, come in for this seminar and learn how to use Dianetics, you know. Were you charging for it or was it a free seminar? Free seminar. Okay. We got um, that first seminar, we got 50 people in. Wow. Which was good. Mm -hmm. So we had 50 people in a hotel room and twinned them up. You know, they did their sessions and then we told them to go into the org. Well, I got so much shit on that when I got back to the base. Really? Because, yeah, because we had held it in a hotel. Not in the orc. Okay. So they couldn't count it as bodies in the shop. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, this was this is the thinking. Right. This is the thinking that goes on. Right. So so they said, Why didn't you hold it in the orc? And we said, Have you seen Atlanta Orc? Exactly. Cause this is in the eighties when these orgs were shitholes. Yeah, yeah. And for the most part, still are. Exactly. They yeah. couldn't they couldn't fit um 50 people in their uh, intro lecture room. Right. Or in, or in their lobby, for that matter. Right. It, they were too small. You know? Right. So we started doing this all over the U.S. And we were getting an average of 50 people over a weekend. Wow. And they were coming, and we would look in the parking lot, and there would be Mercedes and BMWs. These were not... Um, you know, poor people that were coming. These yep. were prime public, you know? Mm. Mm -hmm. And, but no, no, they had to be done in the org. This was a squirrel activity, da, 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 da. And it got completely axed. We had it figured out down to the promotion, the forms, everything was worked out. Just a turn, it was a turnkey operation. Anybody could have done it. Mm -hmm. It was just to send out this this fly, this exact flyer to this list, and then they'll come in and you go one, two, three, four, 
lecture video co-auditing, boom, 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 boom. And then you sign them up to go into the org. That got quashed so fast by management. It was all worked out. We had worked it all out. It could have just gone like gangbusters. It's almost impossible to believe. Except, of course, I believe every word of it because I've lived it. So I totally yeah. get what you're talking about. And it's, it's hard to describe. You know, it, we talk here. We're, I mean, really, the theme of our talk so far has been, you know, the Scientologists are smart people. And yet here we see how smart people can act in the stupidest ways because you wall in their intelligence around certain fixed ideas, certain ways that things have to be. And, yeah. and, you, and when you're, and as, as Hubbard himself said, when you're violating basic laws, you know, and, and marketing and promo have laws, there are rules, you know, then these yeah. rules exist for a reason. Yeah. So, and, it, and interestingly enough, Hubbard always said to study log advertising and marketing texts. That's right. And he, and he said, these people need to study these textbooks about marketing and advertising. So we did. You know, it was that was enforced. That was our study time. We had to study, and I was learning all of this stuff. And then I would try to apply it, and they would go, "That's not per policy." Exactly. I'd say, "Listen, LRH said to study these books. Here it is in the book. So fuck off." You know. That's right, and that's how you had to get your job done. But eventually, yeah. you know, the top of the organization is mad, is is quite mad. And so it's like it's kind of like the Alice in Wonderland, which is, of course, a hilarious analogy because Alice in Wonderland is the primary text of, you know, their communications classes. They they read, you know, we all read it, practically memorized that book uh, in yeah. doing all the communications drills of Scientology. And yet the kind of lines that occur in that book are a daily occurrence in Scientology. The Mad Hatter is ruling the land. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I experienced firsthand that you can have a really, really successful marketing campaign and it always gets stopped. The Dianetics campaign was stopped cold, dead in 1990. You can take a long term graph of Scientology. And I wish I had I had thought to print out those graphs before I left. Mm -hmm. But, But you can mark a red line in 1991 like summer 1991 just after the campaign was canceled and the stats just go and they were still going down when i left wow just and do you know how funny this is in retrospect because if we tie that into the fact that two years later scientology got official irs recognition and the war was over which was huge i mean on any metric that was a big deal yeah and to think that had they continued those campaigns, the Dianetics campaign, then they would have had this broad grassroots public level acceptance of Dianetics, which would have led to a very easy flip to acceptance of Scientology. Yeah. And they could have used the 93 win as a whole nother reason uh, to, to have another marketing campaign of look at how legit we are. Right, yeah, yeah. how legit we are. Like this, the government acknowledges we are legit. We're a religion. We want you on board. Come on, you know, and use '90s marketing buttons to get that demographic. 
It seems to me that not only, I mean, this is a, this is a subtlety at this point, but it's um, because they don't understand or even, uh, even attempt to think with the most basic of marketing 101, you know, points, as you have pointed out here. Yeah. But there is also a, a, an utter lack of recognition in the Scientology world, and Hubbard never really seemed to make it clear except in a couple places which are very easy to ignore. Mm. That culture changes, that, that, yeah. that people change how they see things and therefore what's acceptable and what's not. You know, he alludes to this in survey tech, but, but you show exactly how it gets stopped by people who can't or won't think outside the box because they're the pressures of having to conform. If there yeah. is any... You know, there's a thing called the Ash Conformity Experiment, which we study in psychology, which has to do with people in a room conforming to what other people are saying, even when what they're saying is wrong. Yes, and how, yes. And this is one of the most successfully replicated uh, experiments in, in social psychology ever. It's it's a uniform thing. We find different results around the world depending on culture and, and language and, and, and gender and individuals, but we do find percentages of conformity. I would posit that in the world of Scientology, the Ash conformity experiment would be near 100%. Yes, yeah. You know, that you're going to find people who are going to agree to and demand the most ridiculous untruth as truth because the social pressures are such that they must think that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and I think yeah. you and I are having this conversation right now because we're not of that mold or somehow something happened to us, probably more accurately, that broke us from that mold. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. 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 And you asked earlier if you think, if I think David Miscavige is interested in expanding science. Yeah, let's continue that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, his only interest and the only interest of Ent management is what is the GI Thursday at two o'clock? That's the only interest. And if you're not participating in that, they have no interest in what you're doing. <clears throat> Absolutely not. And I was able to fly under the radar mm. because nobody was interested in what I was doing. <laughs> So I, I, I could do whatever I wanted, you know? Exactly. And yet you were the one who was actually enabling a gross income boom for, you know, the next couple of years. Yeah, exactly. Right? Because the GI, exactly. gross income. And so we're talking about the money, right? And and let's, the money. And, and I always have to bring this up, and I never lead with it, and I always, I always uh, say I should. Let's all remember that at the bottom line, Scientology is a money-making scam. Yeah, totally, totally. So. It's all about money. Interesting that um, Miscavige had a code word for rich people. They were he called them dedicated. Dedicated. Interesting. Yeah. Dedicated Scientologists. Yeah, and and there was a mailing list of a thousand people yeah. that Miscavige referred to as the most dedicated Scientologists. It was all the people that fund everything that goes on. Right. The Craig yeah. Densons of the world, the Bob Duggins of the world, the, the whales is the ones as how we refer to them outside Scientology. Yeah, exactly. And every time there was, a, say, a, a release of a new tape series, 
the regis would pre-sell them to this list of a thousand people. Yeah. And then, so then you'd get immediately, you'd get a thousand sales or, or, or more, you know, you sell them, you know, two sets, three sets, four sets, whatever. That's right. <clears throat> but you remember when, uh, when he called Tom Cruise, the most dedicated Scientologist that, I know, yeah. that's what he meant. That's what he meant. Oh, wow. <laughs> Interesting. Because I'll tell you, I mean, I, I'm sure you felt this way. I felt like it was a slap in the face to every Sea Org member. Every CR member felt that way. Yeah. yeah. Every yeah. single one. We all looked around and went, what? And then we shut up because you can't say shit like that. But we yeah. were like, what? Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody adores Tom Cruise. But to say Tom Cruise is the most dedicated Scientologist when we were slaving our asses off 24-7. Yeah. I mean, it was like Miscavige just slapped the entire Sea Org right upside the face. It was unbelievably insulting. Yeah. But if you understand his code, that see, I never heard that before. So that, that actually yeah. put that in a whole new light. Yeah, exactly. He was he was a money maker. Yeah, uh, yeah, still is, still yeah. is, because that's what he focused attention on. And I have I have conjectured with um, both ex and non Scientology friends in the you know forensic accountants and people who live in 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 different financial worlds than I do about. Um, you know, how else he might be utilizing those dedicated Scientologist lines for further influence and power. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on a non-Scientology, maybe outside the bounds of the church kind of way. You know, there's money laundering. Yeah. There are ways of doing things and buying and you know, influence peddling is a thing. Yeah, yeah. You hold exactly. the secrets of these people in PC folders, and Scientology does. Let's not make any mistake about it. Bob Duggan sure. PC folders where he's divulged confidential information that could potentially be career-ending. Yeah, could put him in jail, probably. Yeah, exactly. And that's not. And that's the way with you know Venezuelan whales, with uh, American whales, with European whales. They're all over. And if they can. Uh, if he can just, you know, keep that list under control, then he probably feels he's got Scientology under control because that's enough money to keep the thing going. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, he could keep he could keep Scientology going with no new people coming in. Yeah, just on those whales. You know? Exactly. And I think I think if there's any calculus he's done, it's that. Because yeah. I, 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 I love throwing this around with, with, uh, with former members and stuff. I want to ask you about this. You know, it seems to me, and looking at the timeline of, of all of this, um, you know, which we've looked at as exes, you know, in our own journey so many times. Yeah. And it seems to me <laughs> Lisa McPherson was a, a a touchstone, a real, a really important point in the Scientology timeline. Yeah, absolutely. I I think for two reasons. I think reason number one, it's the closest Miscavige ever came to going to jail for real. <laughs> and two, um, I think it, it I think it exposed the liability of auditing to Miscavige in a way he had never seen before. You know, the Wallersheim case, the, the Christopherson case, those were cases of training, 
gone bad or Scientology gone bad or people just, you know, not happy with what had happened. And then, of course, there was the whole David Mayo, you know, implosion. But Lisa yeah. McPherson was different. She was a single Scientologist, totally dedicated, who had a complete psychotic break on the streets of Clearwater and ended up being, you know, basically killed by Scientology through their mismanagement and mistreatment of her uh, medically. Yeah. And so Miscavige is on, you know, head is on the chopping block. Uh, you know, Marty has to destroy evidence. He's admitted as such. I'm not making that up. Uh, you know, they're literally committing crimes to keep Miscavige safe. And All I right. think that that was a little bit my my takeaway from that. Why I bring this up, I wanted to run this by you is that was all 95, 97, 99 time period, right? That five years is when McPherson was blowing, blowing sky high. Yeah. yeah. After that, you see much less emphasis on selling and delivering auditing or even making auditors because Golden Age of Tech from 97 was a total disaster, right? Yeah, yeah, 96, yeah, yeah. sorry, 96. Total disaster. Slowed down the making of auditors internationally. So my thinking is that Miscavige might have seen the writing on the wall from that and changed the course of Scientology to a degree to emphasize books, lectures, materials, lower level services. Let's guy, let's have people touching walls for thousands of hours, right? Let's have right. sit in a sauna three times, you know, do a pure of three times in a, you know, over the course of their Scientology career, rather than focus on the auditing delivery which is still given lip service, but is not as much emphasis. And as a manager, I experienced that directly. The, the pressure to make auditors, the pressure to get auditing happening came way off. Right. It, it and, went on to material. Yes. And, that, and, totally, I, and, and totally. I'm thinking this is why. But I wanted to get your perspective because you were up at the base during that whole time. And you were the one, you were there actually working on these lines. So is any of my conjecture, do you think, realistic? I think it is. Um, uh, yes, the attention went off of services altogether mm. and, and onto materials, mm -hmm. uh, because back in back in that time period, there were what five or six events every year, mm -hmm. and the big thing at every event was what are we going to release? What what lectures are we going to release? What books are we going to release? Yep. That was the entire conversation at int level. And then marketing was just going from event to the next event, to the next event, to the next event. That's all we did. Okay. You know? Yep. And it, it had become that at that point. Yeah. And marketing was only doing materials. Okay. Right. Cause five years earlier, the Dianetics campaign got nixed. 1990, 91, right? So we come forward a little bit because then we got the then the IRS recognition happens in 93. It's a whole new world for Scientology. Let's boom, boom, boom. Let's make auditors. In fact, there was a more there was a, a, a an amnesty issued after the IRS win. It was yeah. all about making auditors. Let's get 25 people in the TTC. That's when that became a thing. And I mean, at that at the ground level, that's what we were hearing and experiencing. Yeah. And then you come forward to, you know, Miscavige writing an issue on can squeezes and and sort of inserting himself on technical lines, which he had not done before up until then on a broad level. And then Golden Age of Tech happens two years later. And that is when the ship of Scientology really started sinking. Yeah. Yeah. It became almost impossible to become an auditor. Yeah. 
Exactly. Almost impossible. That's know? right. Years and years and years of work. Whereas when I was back in the day in Santa Barbara, we'd be pumping out auditors every week. And this isn't a tiny little podunk org. Santa Barbara was nothing. And yeah. we were making auditors all the time. Yeah. And then as a manager, I watched the auditors made statistic which is basically like the doctors of Scientology. I mean, these are the practitioners. These are the people who are going to be making the money. Yeah. So I watched that graph hit goose eggs and just stay that way for like a year at a time. Across yeah. the continent, not just in one organization, nobody was making auditors. So the emphasis on materials, you know, kind of uh, is what took over that. And Scientology has basically been running on that platform ever since. Of, and, and, and a dedicated thing, I think that list is actually a very important thing that you shared there because it tells me that, yeah. that he's really just kind of playing these two poles. Yeah, yeah. Work, work the dedicated list, build it if he can. But, you know, materials, 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 he's, you know. Yeah. More and more materials, and you have to buy a second set, a third set, and all of that craziness exactly. went on. And every staff member has to stay up until they sell a certain quota, and on and on. It just got, it just got more and more um, horrible, really, as time went on. Yeah, it really did. You um, keep your finger on the pulse of it still? Uh, to the degree that I can. There's yeah. <laughs> very little information coming out. I think the last person I talked to who left the int base was a couple of years ago. Yep. Um, how are they? How 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 did your conversation go as far as conditions and stuff there? She said, "Oh, it's gotten much worse," and I was like, "What? How could it get much worse?" Wow! Did she say so, they how? Just more, you know, more of the same. Mm. Yeah. You know? But she said it's gotten worse, and I was just like, I, I can't even conceive of how that would be, you know? Right. Because between you and Mark Headley, we've heard about the food cards, you know, yeah. the rationing cards, the, the the systems that are in place to, you know. The birthing, the birthing cards, yeah. everything. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You, could, you could literally end up, these are privileges that you have to earn, basically, at the end right. of this. That you have to, or you have to basically, you could lose your right to go to bed at night. Yeah. Well, you would have to sleep under your desk. Right. You, you would lose your right to go home. You would lose, you would, you would lose your, the little shoddy apartment that they allocated for you. You would lose that. You'd have to sleep outside on the lawn or under your desk or, or wherever you could find. And if you lost your food card, beans and rice. You know? Yeah, exactly. This is the epitome of what uh, a man named Robert J. Lifton's uh, book is all about in terms of... Uh, you know, these eight points of control or, or eight points of thought reform. How do you change people's minds? Well, yeah. if you control environmental control. You know, if you hold the power of, of sleep and food over people, you basically control their minds. Yeah, exactly. And we used to have a running gag, another one of our running gags, that there was a, an error card. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> They're going to take away your error card. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I could totally see that. Well... Where do you think, I mean, it seems to me that with this last year, um, the most effective thing Miscavige could think to possibly do is take the Sea Org, um, what's the word, obsession with cleanliness? 
<laughs> to the to the outside world and try to assist in cleaning places up. And that's about as much contribution as they've had over this last year while their orgs are all boarded up. To this day, we have orgs that are boarded up and apparently not very open to the public. Yeah, they're hurting. I'm sure they're hurting. I'm predicting pretty some pretty big doom there. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's the end of the church, but this last year could not have been good for them. No, not at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, they weren't getting any new people in anyway. Right. Because of Leah's show and the internet and everything else, their flow of new people coming in is pretty much choked off. So they're having to recycle their existing field over and over and over again, which is causing stress on, on that group. Yep. You know, like, um, if you have to pay to go clear a third time, you know, you're going to start to go, what is wrong here? Something is wrong. That's know? right. And ever since they actually instituted that um, and similar measures, this, this repeating business of you have to do the same things over and over again, they have been actively losing people. It's not, you know, I, I really want people to understand out there, again, on the theme of what we're talking about here, that that, you know, smart people are going to wake up. Yeah. That does happen. And it happens every day of the week in these groups. It's not a matter of you have a mind control thought reform situation that people can never break free of. There is always the possibility that somebody could snap out of it. It only takes an emotionally intense or um, impactful event for the person to start questioning what's going on around them and start reframing things from a different point of view and suddenly everything's different and that happens all the time and it generally is um you know impelled or started because the church does some abusive thing yeah exactly i'll yeah. tell you I, i've talked to a lot of ex-int-based people obviously mm -hmm. and I think everyone at the end base had a daydream about escaping, mm. fantasized about escaping. Yep. I think every single staff member has that, that dream. You know, if I could just walk away from this place, you know, and yeah. And then it takes, all it takes is some uh, inciting event and they're gone. You know, that's right. It's not easy to do. It's not an easy thing to do, but, you get to the point where, I mean, I got to the point where it was like, if I spend one more day in this place, I'm just going to die. Yep. Uh, I, I cannot spend another day in this place. And then it was like, okay, what do I have to do to get out of here? You know, and I, I did the whole routing out drill, which is horrible, <clears throat> but I got out that way. You know? yep. you, yeah, me too. And it was yeah. very, very, very similar. I, I think our, um, you know, I, 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 it took me, it took more to wake me up than the RPF, which is kind of amazing, hmm. considering how abusive three years of the RPF was. I mean, it was no picnic. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. You know that was, <clears throat> but there were things that happened on the RPF that, that changed me in very significant ways that I could never unsee. I mean, there, it wasn't like it didn't do anything. Yeah. yeah. You know, there, I was completely done with Scientology organizationally after the RPF. I was just putting up with 
other Sea Org members giving me bullshit because I knew I was in a situation where this organization was out of its fucking mind organizationally. Yes. And I knew Miscavige did not know what the fuck he was doing. Yeah. But I reconciled it. I was desperately reconciling it with, yes, but ideal orgs are happening. And yes, we're expanding. And yes, things are getting bigger. And and it was very fortuitous that about a year and a half after getting off the RPF, I was out again in those orgs, opening ideal orgs and seeing for myself that it's a lie. Yeah. And, and after about four or five org openings, it's undeniable. It should have been undeniable earlier than that, but I'm a slow learner, so that's what it took. But it was obvious that Miscavige's products that, that, that's, that in my mind balanced out his horribleness and balanced out the organizational madness, mm. I thought, well, we're still growing and succeeding, so I've got to keep putting up with this because at the end of the day, I want everybody to get this technology. That's what I want. You know, and I have to put up with this organization to do that. That was me after the RPF. Yeah. After seeing the lie of the orgs and the fact that it was only and exclusively about the money, I was done. You know, that was yeah, my way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so we all have, I guess the point being that we all have our breaking point, but I want to stress to everybody out there, no matter how desperate you think the situation is no matter how enfolded or entrapped in a belief system you think somebody is i'm telling you there's always hope to get them out of it there is well people never thought that i would leave right. because i i was like you know super dedicated sea org officer you know it was just you know bomb 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 and you know, a lot of my friends were really shocked when I left. They were like, oh, we never thought you'd leave ever, you know? Yep, so it, it happens, you know? Exactly. And I obviously this has everything to do with current events. You know, I, I think people who believe that my channel is just about Scientology are kind of missing the point. So <laughs> I thought I might try to use this 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 opportunity here in the face of what happened yesterday in Washington, D.C., to point out that every single thing that Jeff and I have been sitting here talking about in regards to the Scientology mindset, the, the, the life at the ant base, the, the abuses of the environment that we found ourselves in and the way that we put up with it because we thought we were on a goal of helping people and saving the world, and we really, truly both wholeheartedly believe that and dedicated our lives to it. Yeah. You know, this is not so different from what goes yeah. on in D.C. Yeah. yeah. Or, or in government circles or in CEO, you know, in corporation boardrooms or in, in, in places, in, in, in martial arts dojos, in Boy Scout troops. These things we're talking about, the mindset, the abusive behavior, the unthinking leadership that is only interested in itself and will do anything and everything to ensure it stays in power. You know, all of this parallels all yeah. in all these spheres. Yeah, it absolutely does, yeah. And I just wanna stress that Scientology is not some oddball weird thing that you get to laugh at. I'm doing this so that we can educate everybody out there as to how nuts people can get 
and how there is a path back from that nuttiness. Yeah, yeah. If you do the right things, and we talked about what those things are at the very beginning of our show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so, but, you know, and you're, you're up in Oregon, you see some, you've been watching this year of insanity with Antifa and demonstrations and riots and all of this. And yet it seems that a lot of that was hyped. It was very much hyped. I mean, I, I went downtown uh, and just walked around after all that had happened because according to, you know, my friends on the right, you know, and I do have friends that are Trump supporters or, Mm -hmm. right right wing people portland was a war zone it was just ruins it was just ruins you know yeah and so i went downtown and i went all over downtown taking pictures and then i posted them and said here is the smoking ruin that is portland you know and i remember that post beautiful parks and you know beautiful buildings and there was a couple blocks where people had written graffiti on the walls that was about it, you know? Wow. And some kind of sketchy guys were hanging out. But, you know, life goes on, you know? Exactly. It's not, it's not the hellhole that people imagined. And I wanted to uh, get your input on that because you do live there. Yeah. So if either of us knows the situation in Portland, it's you rather than me. And I was <laughs> under the impression, I mean, really, I was under, I was believing the media the reports, not, not, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't go to Breitbart. I'm not talking about Fox news reports. I'm talking about stuff yeah. MSNBC and CNN were reporting and they yeah. were presenting a war zone and they, and they presented this in cities across the country as the current news. This is what was happening. And we all thought the summer of 2020 was absolutely going to see America implode over you know, Black Lives Matter and these protests and riots. And this is how it was being reported to us. And then we find, actually, no, it's not really quite that bad. And perhaps there is some misreporting going on here. Right. And I want to stress that as part of this picture, mm-hmm. because it's part of the thing that makes us all agitated and drives us to this kind of extremist thinking. Yeah, <clears throat> exactly. In Portland, it was always confined to, I think, three square blocks at most. Yeah. The the rest of of the whole Portland area was just life went on as usual. Right. There were a few square blocks downtown near the federal building where anything was happening. And that was only happening um, in the evening and at night. If you could go down there during the day, nothing was going on. Right. Exactly. And I, 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 of course, I've spoken at this about this at length in earlier podcasts. So I'm not trying to now, you know, walk back everything I said and be like, oh, well, it was all just fine. I'm just trying to stress that there is proportionality or perspective that can be missed. And I've, I will be the first to admit that I can get riled up just like anybody else. And, yeah. and if I see bad things happening, it makes me upset. And if I'm being told that this is happening all over and that there are threats, you know, to my safety and security, to my wife's, to the, hum- you know, to people in general, my emotions are going to get riled up. How could they not? You know, so, yeah. and it's by design. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, that's that's what news does is it blows everything up, you know? Yeah. Um. My first experience with that was back in um, 
67, I think it was, there was a huge anti-war march uh, downtown LA. Uh, I think Nixon was, or no, Johnson was at the Century Plaza Hotel meeting with uh, Chicago, the Chicago mayor at the time. And so there was a big march was organized, probably 10,000 people showed up wow. and, and marched past um, the hotel. And they had said during the briefing part of the march, we are not allowed to stop in front of uh, the hotel. And everybody went, okay, cool. We'll just march right past, we've made our point. Well, we get down there and there's a, a, a barrier and a slope down to the freeway on one side and the hotel on the other side. So we're like, just going through this corridor. Mm -hmm. And there were a number of kids at the start of the march who, who sat down. They staged a sit-in, mm -hmm. right? Stopping the whole march in front of the hotel, mm -hmm. right? And then somebody gave a signal and there were 5,000 LA cops there. 5,000. 5,000? Wow. And they descended on the crowd with their, their, their bully sticks out, and they started hitting, bam, bam, bam. And these were not a, a, a bunch of kids. These were adults, doctors, nurses, business people, children. And I saw a 12-year-old girl running back towards me, blood running down her face. And I was like, oh, this, this, this cannot be. And so we all ran back to the car, got in the car, turned on the radio, and there were live reports going. And it was like, this is terrible. This is terrible. The cops are just beating people. This is just, you know, they're out of control. The cops are out of control, blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, like turning a switch, the story changed. Mm -hmm. And it was like thousands of drug-crazed hippies mm -hmm. rioted at the Century Plaza Hotel and the police had to put them down. Right. And it was like we had rioted. Yeah. Well, we, we hadn't rioted. It was the cops that had rioted. And they had gone on the attack. And ever since then, I just take with a grain of salt the reports that, that come out of these things. Because they're just trying to sell papers or get eyeballs on their newscasts. That's all they're trying to do. So the more blood and gore and chaos they can um, generate, the better for them. Like, I'm sure that the that the... Um, the attack on the Capitol building, you know, it was bad. But, you know, the news reports, they take all the most violent segments and just run them as a collage. That's right. You know? That's right. And I'm, and I'm sure it was just mostly people just standing around with their thumbs up their asses and going, well, what do we do now? What do we do now? You know? As generally, <laughs> people in groups tend to do. You know, yeah. again, yeah. you know, it's a, you don't have to believe all the rhetoric. You know, I mean, people are people and they tend to be rather timid and they tend to be rather, you know, even when they're out protesting, they're not, you know, OK, let's you know, it's not everybody who's like, let's go break all the windows and, and tear down all the buildings and stuff. It's those are agitators. Those are a different brand of person. Than, well, we found out later that the kids that had stopped and sat down. Yeah. They were SDS, Students for Democratic Society. Mm -hmm. And their meeting, their meetings had been infiltrated 
by um, government people and by the security people of the hotel. Mm. And, and, the, and the agents that were coming in were the ones pushing this, let's stop the march in front of the hotel. Let's stop the march All in front right. of the hotel. That's, that's <laughs> the betrayal of trust. That's yeah. the betrayal of public trust. You know, when you say, when you, when you first initially say, well, you know, this law enforcement infiltrated the group, I'm like, well, I hope so, because I want them to understand what they're facing. But yeah. they become the instigators now, now, you know, <laughs> they've taken on the color of the enemy, Jeff. What condition does that put them in? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. that's when that's when lines are crossed. And that was Hoover's FBI. That was all kinds of nasty, corruptive stuff that, yeah, of course, that kind of crap is still going on. So we have to be ever vigilant. It's, it's the price of freedom. Yeah. Well, Jeff, this has certainly been interesting. I wanted to tackle this subject that you wanted to bring up here. I think we did. I think we've done an incredible tour of some Scientology history and some and some of your experiences with this. Is there anything else about this that we did not cover or that you wanted to talk about? I think we've I think we've milked it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think it was a great conversation. And I want to thank you very much because I love talking to you. You know, I I really consider you a friend and I think that um, that that you've got amazing things to say. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I really enjoy your podcast. I am honored to be on it. So (laughs) anytime you want to chat, you know. Absolutely. We will definitely do this again. It's been too, too infrequent, I think. Um, yeah. Now, is there any way if somebody wants to reach out to you, do you want to put up how the folks should reach you? Uh, yeah, there's a there is an email that I can send you. Yeah, I'll put it in the description section. Yeah, yeah. And people can reach me that way. It's uh, it's one that I've kind of left um, dedicated to Scientology feedback. Great. And I, I, I get messages on that, you know, a couple of times a week quite often of people who have left Scientology or they want to get a loved one out of Scientology or they've just read my book or whatever, you know? Perfect. Great. Okay. Well, folks, you can find that in the description section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. Um, and I hope that you all take some of this to heart. You know, we're not trying to come at this from we know best and we know everything there is to know about all this, but we have experiences that a lot of you don't. <laughs> and all we're trying to do is share. And, and, be, and be thankful for that. You exactly. Know? <laughs> Hopefully we can keep it that way. So that's what we're trying to do here. So thank you very much for coming around and listening to us Babylon here. We really do appreciate it. And if you find the channel, and my work here, informative, educational, and entertaining, then consider joining me on Patreon or supporting me through PayPal because that's what keeps the lights on in the show going, folks. All right, see you next week. Bye-bye.